Here we go, once again, Robert Nauer, Unfiltered. And Season 2, I think this is going to be Episode 4, which is a continuation of reporting aboard the USS John F. Kennedy and Rota Spain Harbor, coming back to the United States. And just a little bit of topical information about what I encountered, how things were, being a brand new ensign in the Navy. And even though that was 1976, the reality is it's still the same today. Truly, the only thing that has changed, well, there's basically three things that have changed in the Navy over the past 45 plus 50 years, and they are. We are no longer uh, non-digital. Today, we are digital. And things that we couldn't do in the 70s and 80s, we can now do because we are digital. Weapon systems, completely, for the most part, different, except for the phalanx system. Today, our missiles, our bombs, our computers connected, everything that is related to weapon systems is digital. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing. Maybe that's not. But I sometimes think about the 70s when we were non-digital. Things were a lot easier to do. Carburetors were a lot easier to fix. Weapon systems were a lot easier to fix. But they were also bigger because we were not digital. So things are different in that respect. People? People are the same as they were in the 70s, with the exception that the new officers and enlisted in the Navy are all digitally trained. They're trained to use computers. They understand that kind of thing. Uh, a lot of the old timers don't. So other than that, the Navy has not really changed a lot. During the late 80s, when I was getting out and going into civil service, the Navy was converting over its EDFs on board, its enlisted dining facilities, to become more of fast food facilities with hamburgers, shakes, fries, things that sailors like. But in doing so, the Navy has become fatter. And I find that odd because when I was in, they had what was known as the Fatty EI program. In other words, if you were overweight out of standard, regardless of officer enlisted, you had to meet certain height and weight requirements and physical phys fitness standards. And all of that has now shifted in the 2020s. And God help us if we become... Um, any fatter than we are. Many getting out of the Navy today are borderline with diabetes. And I think it's directly related to the quality or the poor quality of food, fast food, that is served in the enlisted dining facilities aboard ships today and ashore. We've got to get back to eating better food, non-processed food. Anyway, that's a whole nother segment down the line and maybe a whole nother season. So anyway, when I reported aboard, as I was saying, by helicopter, I was just astounded at, at the staggering size of the aircraft carrier John F. Kennedy. 
the very first thing that happened, and it was really amazing, was here I am reporting aboard, and they had just had a robbery, not on board my ship, but the USS Independence, another aircraft carrier that was um, in chopping. So the USS Indy was in chopping while the JFK was out chopping, and we had to transfer money um, over to the Indy, what remaining foreign currencies we still had on board, so that the Indy could have those foreign currencies as well as the monies. Well, some some dick aboard the Indy tried to rob it. Honest to God, tried to rob the dispersing office in the middle of Rota, Spain's harbor. And he he had them put like a whole black bag full of cash, probably close to $150,000, $200,000 in cash and other bills into a black bag. But the one of the things that you don't do is you don't run around a ship with a bag of currency unless you have a float on it. And whenever we would go pick up money, we'd always have these big black bags with buoys on them so they could float. Well, the guy had the Marine Mardet chase him and he jumped overboard the ship with the money into Rota Spain's harbor and they got him and they got the money and they got all the money back, believe it or not, and the guy that tried to rob the office. And all of this was going on while I was to meet the DO and he was all frazzled because their dispersing office had been robbed. It was quite an eye opener for my very first day aboard an aircraft carrier to see all of this happen. And I'm thinking to myself, holy shit, if they would rob an aircraft carrier, the Indy, that is in shopping, uh, are they going to rob me, the John F. Kennedy? I don't know. So I was always very concerned about security, and I always made sure that our doors were locked correctly. And we had weapon system, weapon locks, hasps, and locks on the doors, had them welded to the door. So when, when we closed up shop for the day, there ain't no way in hell anybody was breaking into the dispersing office or into our safe because they had weapons-grade locks that you could not cut through even with a torch. So I was pretty comfortable knowing that my money was going to be safe whenever the doors were all locked and we were done for the day. It was a pretty demanding job. I had $2.5 million of actual U.S. currency besides some foreign currency in my safes. I had a bank of eight tall boy safes behind my desk and to the immediate right of my desk was my senior chief's desk and in the outer office we had 16 dk's who basically ran all the pay records and readied everything for payday every two weeks it was a pretty monumental task to pay 6,000 people we paid them by ibm check and then we had to take their checks and give them money for their checks and that's how we did paydays back then today in 2020 There are no dispersing offices aboard ship. They're all ashore. And uh, money like what we kept is no longer kept in that massive amount aboard any ship. Uh, There is some money, but very, very limited. So what I did back then, they don't do anymore. Anyway, so besides the fact that uh, the USS Independence next door to us had a robbery, And uh, I was dealing with that. I was also dealing with getting used to all my new um, co-workers. We had Ensign Kenny Walters, who ultimately, about a year and a half later, ended up taking my place as dispersing office officer 
when I fleeted up to sales officer, which was normally a chief warrant officer billet. So Kenny, Kenny was a very in, interesting, strange, very hyperactive AC, uh, ACDC kind of person from Philadelphia. Real funny guy. We loved him. Then we had Bud Toma, which is George Toma. We called him Bud. And he's still one of my best friends ever in life. And, you know, sometimes when you join the military services, I've always said this and many other people say it too, the best friends that you will ever have for life are the true friends that you will serve with in the military. And that was definitely true. Two of the very best friends that I have had for life, and one of them just passed away of cancer, was Bud Telma. Uh, and then I had Roger Runbacon, who was the ship's dentist, and both really great guys. We also had Lieutenant Hank Boardman, who was a different guy, a nice guy. He became a chief operating officer for a major Fortune 500 company in D.C. after he got out. He retired as a Navy captain. Real good guy. I liked him. A little high-strung, but a good guy. Then we had Lieutenant J.G. Stewart Funk, which was the ship's fuels officer, which I had the pleasure of bunking with in an eight-man stateroom on the 04 level. And uh, then we had the supply officer was a guy by the name of Joe Konopek, commander at the time. He made captain. Real good guy. They called him the stork because he was so tall. And then we had Fitz Fitzgerald, who was the assistant supply officer that came in after uh, Bob Fennick. And Fitz was kind of a strange wackadoodle in a way. He and I had, went to Fisticus in, the, in a passageway one time that I'm going to tell you about. He wanted me to open my ship's uh, store during an import visit to Naples on our day off. And I said, like hell I am. Well, he pissed me off so bad, I threw a punch at him. And he was very afraid of me from that point on. And he was a little schizoid. He was strange, too, because he was married to a woman that was like 10 years older than him. Uh, and then we also had Chief Warrant Officer CWO3 uh, Gunderson. Real nice guy. Don't know where, what state he was from, but just a really nice guy. Then we had Lieutenant J.G. Doug Henry, which was the food service officer that was uh, soon to be replaced when we got back to Norfolk by Ensign Eric Norris. And Eric was a real fun guy to have on board. Got himself in a little trouble with the skipper because he didn't think he was running the EDF the way he wanted it run. And uh, finally, we had a former Navy SEAL officer who had converted over to becoming a supply officer by the name of John Faircloth, Lieutenant John Faircloth. And John was just a really jovial, friendly guy. Uh, pretty much all of the guys, not only the, the men uh, that were officers, but the enlisted were all, everybody in the supply department was easy to get along with and a lot of fun. And I called them all shipmates because I couldn't remember. I think we had close to, I guess, 120. No, even more than that. We had several hundred supply personnel, and I couldn't remember all their names. I remembered maybe about 150 names. But everybody else that I didn't remember, I always called them shipmate. I'd say, hey, shipmate, how you doing? They'd say, hey, Mr. Nauer, how are you? And I'd say, fine, shipmate. 
that I didn't remember their names, but they thought I did when I called them shipmate. The other interesting thing about the John F. Kennedy was it collided with more ships and got in more trouble than probably anyone I had ever heard of. During my time on board the Kennedy, remember, I had just reported on board in Rota, Spain, right after the JFK had collided with the USS Belknap. Uh, no, nobody was lost on board the Kennedy, though there were some severe burns, but a number of um, sailors died on the USS Belknap, and, and ultimately the Belknap had to be scrapped. It was in that bad of a condition after the carrier had run over it. That's how bad. And several people got court-martialed as a result of that collision at sea. Then, uh, during my very first med cruise, we collided with the USS Bordelon, which was an AO, uh, an AO, an oiler, which we were fueled with. And then later on, in my last med cruise, we collided with the USS Biddle. Oh, my God. And that was really scary for me because... Here's the funny thing. For, it was funny in a way because my rack, my bed that I slept in, was right directly beneath the number one catapult uh, on the carrier deck. So my stateroom and my bed was directly under the catapult. I It was so noisy. And every time a jet would take off and the catapults would release, it would be like... <laughs> You couldn't have gotten to sleep ever if you didn't have earplugs. So the entire tour that I was in that stateroom, I always wore earplugs. And I slept through a lot of shit. And yes, I slept through the collision with the USS Bordelon. And the alarms were going off. Man overboard was going off. Bong, bong, bong. Man overboard plus two minutes. Bong, bong, man overboard, plus four. They couldn't find me. They thought, and the captain was pissed, too. We had the new cat skipper, Tuttle. And I wasn't responding. You're supposed to run down to the hangar deck and assemble with your division. And I wasn't there. And they're going, where is Mr. Nower? And nobody knew where Mr. Nower was. So finally, somebody says, well, God damn it, go check his stateroom. Has anybody checked his stateroom? So... Uh, the commanding officer ordered the supply officer, Ca Commander Konopek, the assistant, and several other officers to come up to the stateroom. And sure enough, there I was, sleeping sound asleep in my rack. And they tapped me hard. Hey, now we're wake up. And I was startled because I had all these senior officers standing right over my rack. And they're looking at me with a real pissed off look on their face. And I said, what? And they go, where the fuck have you been? You're supposed to be assembled down in the hangar bay. And I said, why? And they go, we just had a collision and you're the only man missing on board the ship. So they said, get your goddamn clothes on and get down there and muster. So it was a little embarrassing to say the least. They reported to the captain, we found him, Skipper. And the Skipper said, you make sure Ensign Nower comes to see me tomorrow morning after quarters. And so, yeah, that was my first meeting with Captain Tuttle. And boy, was he a horse's ass. Short little horse's ass, too. But so anyway, that was kind of interesting. So, but I continued to wear 
uh, earplugs because I had to. I would have never gotten any sleep because of where they put my stateroom. Um, so I finally decided what I would do is wear one earplug in the ear that was not on my pillow and leave the ear unplugged that was on my pillow. And that way, if the collision alarms ever went off again, and they did, I would be able to hear those and to assemble at my station. So when we had the collision with the other ship, the Biddle, well, it just so happened I wasn't sleeping then. I was actually walking around the stateroom at the time, and, and then I went down to the hangar bay, and it was late at night. It was almost 10.30 p.m. at night, or as we would say in the Navy, 22.30 hours. And they say, now alongside the USS Biddle, and we were giving them fuel uh, by High Line. And they lost their steering, and they came, drifted over, and, and ended up hitting the USS John F. Kennedy. And because of our sponsons where we were, they, the sponsons, the heavy metal, collided with their bridge and actually sheared part of their bridge off their ship. And as it did, I'm looking out, and I'm hearing all this huge scraping of metal, and sparks are flying, and... I look up and I see two men that are on the bridge of the USS Biddle bridge wing fall off. Uh, one of them was killed. One of them got cut in half and the other one fell into the ocean. And we were going along at a fairly good clip of almost 20 knots at the time. And I saw that sailor fall in the water and I heard screams from several others. And trust me, when you hear people getting severely cut and hurt, you're going to hear a scream. So I said, holy shit, I got to get out of here. So I just basically went up to my stateroom and got out of the way and knew I was going to have to muster at that time again. So, yeah, the whole ship, 6,000 men had to muster. And uh, it was a pretty frightening experience to be in a shipboard collision like that at sea, especially at night. Maybe daytime wouldn't have been so bad, but uh, it's pretty, pretty bad. Anyway. During my entire tour aboard the USS John F. Kennedy, I saw several sailors uh, get killed. One, the metal shearing through uh, the bodies uh, on the uh, bridge wing. I also saw men get knocked overboard by jet blast. And the worst thing I ever saw was we were doing an unrep, and I was in the hangar bay. And, and you're always told to stay out of the way, stay out of the area where the uh, cables are run to do the unrep, because if they part, they will cut you in half like a razor blade, and that's exactly what happened. The tension between the two ships got too great, and all of a sudden you heard a huge snap, and within the blink of an eye, you saw two sailors that had been standing by that cable cut in half like little rag dolls and their bodies, their torsos spinning around like little spinning tops and blood from their body just spewing everywhere all over the hangar deck. It was a, it was a horrendous sight. Uh, one I, I, I remember, you will never forget it, if you see a body getting cut in half by a parting cable, but uh, I was always warned about it during OCS by an old bosun's mate that taught us in OCS. 
So I always stayed out of the way. I would never get close to the cables for the high lines. And uh, that's just how dangerous being aboard ships are for people. And I also uh, almost lost my head and my neck one time when a 2,000-pound hatch uh, came crashing down and the the um, hatch missed the top of my head by maybe a half of an inch. I had already gone down the ladder, and by the time it hit and, and came crashing down because somebody, some asshole, had pulled the stanchion pins out of the ladder stanchions, um, it's like they wanted somebody to get killed. I don't know. There are some really badass people on board ships at times that do bad things. But it would have killed me if it would have hit me in the head. I, would, I wouldn't be here today. So I'm pretty lucky from everything that uh, I did go through. Besides the fact that um, I, I crashed on board the USS John F. Kennedy in an H-46 helicopter that was trying to land. We were out of fuel. We had gone to Edinburgh, Scotland to pick up a quarter million pounds in British pounds and bring them back to the ship with my DKs. And uh, when we got to Edinburgh's airport, it wasn't too bad. The winds were only like 25, 30 knots. But by the time we got back out to the ship, winds were at 45, disgusting to 60 miles per hour. And the pilots didn't know if they were going to have enough fuel to be able to stay up to properly and safely land. And actually, we had gotten down to the last 100 pounds of fuel. I never saw two pilots of a helicopter with a more of a scared, shitless look on their face in my entire life than the two pilots on that H-46. I, they were terrified, white as a sheet and just had a look of terror on their face. And I remember the pilot looking back at me and telling me, make sure you're strapped in good. Make sure your seatbelts are on tight. And if we do crash land on the deck, wait till the rotors stop moving and then get the hell out quickly. And I then became extremely panicked along with my DKs. And sure enough, we were down to the last 100 pounds. We had 80 to not 90 knot winds whipping across during the North Atlantic winter time. Uh, the ship was at anchor, and it was the I was I really thought I was going to die. Well, we hit when there was a lull in the winds, and like going from 60 knot winds down to 30 knots. When the pilot felt that lull, and we were only like 20 to 25 feet above the deck, he did it in a complete full power down. I mean, he shut the power down on that H-46 helicopter, and it came crashing down. I swear to God, if my tongue had been sticking out, I wouldn't have a tongue today because I would have bit it off. I did get one cracked tooth from it. Uh, I felt like my stomach went up through my throat. I felt my teeth uh, just impact the struts, the landing struts on that helicopter came through the floorboards. The helicopter was a complete loss, except for the engine, when we crashed on the deck. I was so shaken up by that. Besides being shaken up, initially I was shaken up, and when I stumbled off of the helicopter and they, and they hurried us to get out of the way... And I got into the uh, entryway for the conning tower. 
I was so pissed off. And I, then I looked back and I remembered, hey, all my money's still on board the helicopter. So I had people go out to the helicopter and get the black bags that we had gotten from the Scotland Bank and bring them back into the conning tower. But I was so shaken up. I was so pissed off. I went down to the supply office right afterwards, and I told Commander Konopek, I said, God damn it, don't you ever, ever make me fly another fucking helicopter, because if you order me to do it, I'm going to refuse that order. Do you understand? I will never fly on another fucking helicopter as long as I live. Don't you even fucking ask me. That's what I told Commander Konopek. And he and Fitzgerald just sat there in the supply office looking at me. And they, I don't think they had ever heard uh, an ensign in the Navy use that kind of language before. But I was so pissed off. And, and I guess when the chaplain came down to talk to Konopek, he kind of realized I almost lost my life up there. So he kind of understood that. And, and of course, he had a little chat, fireside chat with me the next day in the supply office in private and said, I understand you were upset, Bob. I understand. I understand you might have lost your life up there, but that's what we do in the Navy. And uh, it, all things turned out. Go see the dentist to get your tooth fixed. But, uh, you know, you really can't speak to a senior officer like that. And I said, yeah, 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 I understand. I understand. I really didn't. I was still pissed. And I said, well, I'm still not. And I told him. <laughs> The second day, I said, I'm still not going on a helicopter, sir. If you order me to go, I'm not going. I will refuse that order. You're going to need to find somebody else. And I think that's when he decided, you know what? This kid used to be a Navy exchange manager. I think as soon as we get back from this cruise, I'm going to make Bob the sales officer and put uh, Kenny Walters in charge, and he's going to become the new DO. And that's pretty much what happened, so... Um, Ken became the dispersing officer. I didn't have to fly on helicopters anymore because I wasn't the dispersing officer. And only the dispersing officer really ever had to go fly on helicopters for the most part, unless you were setting up a beach detachment ashore for logistics, in which case, yeah, then you had to. Okay, some of the other funny, quirky things that happened to me when I was aboard the John F. Kennedy during unreps and other situations was as the sales officer, we were so depleted on stereo gear and stereo equipment, I had made a special order, almost $8,000 worth of stereo equipment from the Navy Exchange in Naples, Italy. And it had to be put on board an MSC ship, and then the MSC ship was doing an unrep with the carrier, and I was standing out there with Commander Konopek watching the High Line and and Commander Konopek said, well, Bob, here comes your stereo gear you've been waiting on. And all of a sudden, evidently it was too heavy for the cable. It's coming halfway across the ocean between the other ship and our ship. And all of a sudden I heard, <laughs> now the funny thing was the, the high line didn't part, but what did part was the cable holding the Stereo gear, because normally you never have more than two two thousand to twenty five hundred pounds of of gear on anything coming across the high lines. Well, it turns out that stereo gear must have been close to four or five thousand pounds. Anyway, it caused the cables to snap, and 
all the sailors on the ship were hanging over the side looking when they saw all of their special ordered stereo gear. And they had all special ordered it. Into Davy Jones' locker, there it went. The captain, that was the only thing he said about the unrep was, Well, who fucked that up? Well, it went in almost 10,000 feet down into the drink, and to this day, all that stereo equipment, including Sansui and other equipment, is still in the ocean at the bottom. So I had to prepare a survey, um, an equipment survey for the commanding officer, Captain Tuttle, and Commander Conopec told me to take it up to the bridge while, he, while the captain was up there and to give him the survey and ask him to sign it. So. I did. I prepared the survey, and Commander Conopec said, And oh, by the way, Bob, I think it would be a good idea if you took your Navy P-485 manual for ship sales and take it up to show him where in the manual, and it was a 600-page manual, it says that a survey must be done and the commanding officer must sign off on that survey. I said, Okay, yes, sir, I will. I'll take it up to the captain give him the survey, let him time to read it, and, and if he wants to see the manual. So, like a dumbass, <laughs> like a dumbass, I went up to the the bridge, and the uh, Marine Corps sergeant was standing there, and I said, permission to enter. I have a survey to uh, give to the captain to have him sign off on for the stereo equipment that was lost the other day during the unrep. And the sergeant went over to see the commanding officer, Captain Tuttle, Jerry O., and Tuttle waves me over with his hand as he stands in, in his um, bridge captain's chair. And I said, sir, I said, uh, as you know, I have to do a survey for all that equipment that was lost the other day during the unrep. And I brought along my P-485 manual with the correct citation showing uh, this particular action and how it must be accomplished. And uh, I said, I would greatly appreciate it if you'd sign the survey so I can take this equipment off our books. At that moment, there was dead silence. And T Captain Tuttle turned around in his bridge wing chair and looked at me and then just started screaming, You goddamn fucking little twerp! You come up, have the audacity to come up here and tell me that you want me to sign your little fucking survey? He says, you're the one that that lost the goddamn shit. You signed the fucking survey. I said, but sir, I said, Navy regulations say that you're the only one authorized to sign that survey for such losses. And he goes, I'm not signing the goddamn thing. And then he grabbed my 600-page manual out of my hands that had like these four-ring binders in it. And he threw it so hard at the bridge wing that the manual opened up and within split second, almost 600 pages of paper are now flying all over the bridge wing. Well, that just made matters a whole hell of a lot worse because now, in addition to the captain screaming for me to get off his fucking bridge, he's going... To everybody on the bridge, including the navigator and the helmsman and everybody else, get this shit off my bridge! Get this goddamn shit and paper off my bridge! And these enlisted members and officers on the bridge were all running around trying to scarf up and collect the papers 
that had hit the bridge windshield and splattered everywhere. And they were coming at me with their arms full of paper and trying to hand me all of this bullshit paper that was no longer in order in the manual that I no longer had because he was laying on the deck and all I could do was go get a trash can that was nearby and and I just told them stick it in here stick it in here and meanwhile the captain is screaming at the top of his voice you fucking little drones you fucking morons get this shit off the bridge get this goddamn shit off the bridge and I am just by now, I am just in shell shock. You know, bad enough that I had to go through a helicopter crashing on the deck and to losing my stereo gear, but to have this wackadoodle captain scream because he was the one, not me, but he was the one that threw the manual all over the goddamn bridge wing windshield and caused it to go everywhere. That was just a little bit too much to take. So I, I finally stepped outside of the bridge, collected my thoughts, and about had a nervous breakdown. And then I walked several flights down to the supply office, and I walked in to see Commander Conopec. And I dumped all of my papers in the trash can out on his deck of his supply office. And I said, thanks a lot, Commander, for telling me to take my goddamn manual up there. As you can see, I said, this is what Captain Tuttle thought of it. And I dumped it out on his deck by his desk. And I said, so you can put it back together. I said, I don't give a fuck if I ever see that manual again. I said, and oh, by the way, I'm never taking another fucking survey up to the bridge for Captain Tuttle to sign. Because I think you personally set me up for that. And I said, so don't. But, 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 but. Don't talk to me right now. I'm leaving. So I went back up to the sales office and the assistant supply officer and Commander Conopec were just sitting there looking at all these 600 pieces of paper laying on the deck of the supply office. And ultimately they had uh, Seaman Pluskowski scarf it all up and, and I guess get rid of it or whatever. But anyway, uh, good times, really good times I had during my first two years aboard the USS John F. Kennedy. Yeah, well, probably the best times that any officer or enlisted does have aboard a ship is when they get to pull into a port and go have liberty so they can drink themselves to oblivion to forget all the bullshit that they had to go through while they've been deployed. So anyway... During my next episode, which will be episode number five, I believe, I'm going to tell you some more stories about Captain Jerry O. Tuttle and the things that truly set him apart from many other commanding officers in the Navy. Uh, of all the commanding officers, of all the off senior officers, I and I knew quite a few. I knew three-star admirals, two-star admirals, commodores. Uh, and they were all decent human beings, very nice fellows. Uh, and they were all line officers, too. And I knew a couple supply corps admirals. None acted like the big fucking turd that Jerry O'Tuttle did. He was the biggest fucking turd probably in the entire United States Navy besides Admiral Hyman Rickover. 
who also was a big fucking turd, too. So anyway, episode five coming up. Stand by for heavy rolls and some more bullshit about Jerry O'Tuttle. Okay? So with that, which, <coughs> excuse me,